We've been uh, doing a little uh, thing that's out of our, out of my comfort zone anyway. Usually we teach through the books of the Bible. We finished up Matthew last year and we'll be heading into Second Peter in uh, probably a couple weeks. But uh, we've been doing a little series on the uncompromised church and talking about our place in the body of Christ and um, the outline there is in your bulletin, and so you can uh, look at that and follow along. I just want to open with a reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we see there verse 9, it says, we are God's fellow workers, you are God's building, according to the grace of God, which was given to me. As a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. I heard a story of a new pastor who went to Topeka, Kansas, and he spent his first four days making personal visits to all his prospective congregation. And he invited them out to his inaugural service, his first service there at the church the next Sunday. And the following Sunday, the church was all but empty. Nobody there, maybe one or two people. And rather than be discouraged, the pastor placed a notice in the local newspapers And it stated this, because the church was dead, it was everyone's duty to give it a decent Christian burial. The funeral will be held the following Sunday afternoon. Well, a lot of the people in the community read that and they just kind of the morbid curiosity got the better of them. And a large crowd turned out for the funeral of the church in front of the pulpit. They saw a closed coffin, and it was covered with ornate flowers. And after the pastor had delivered the eulogy, he opened the coffin, and he invited the congregation to come forward to pay their final respects to their dead church. Well, this even got them more morbidly curious, and as they sat there, they thought, what's in that coffin? So filled with curiosity as to what would represent the dead corpse of a church, all the people eagerly lined up in the side aisles to come and look into the coffin to see what was there. And as each mourner peeped into the coffin, they quickly turned away with a guilty, sheepish look. And in the coffin tilted at just the correct angle, the pastor placed a mirror. (laughs) Probably heard that story before, but we find ourselves here this morning in the middle of a series called The Uncompromised Church. And we're looking at what makes up the church and what makes up those who are part of the church. Last time, two weeks ago, we looked at the priorities of the church, and just uh, quickly, we, we saw that, first of all, 
the church is called to have a high view of God. It's to have an understanding that there's an authority to Scripture. This book means something when we read it. There's also amongst that to be a commitment to teaching sound doctrine. Also personal holiness amongst those who make up the church. And submission to spiritual authorities. Now, as we read that verse that we are God's building out of uh, 1 Corinthians, there's a lot of misunderstanding, I guess, is a way to say it, when it comes to understanding the church. And so, first of all, I just want to spend a little bit of time here talking about the basis of the church. I want us to look at some of the misconceptions that are very common in most churches today is when they think of their own church, what they think of. Um, and we want to ask the Spirit of God to pray, that, that, that ask the Spirit of God and pray that He will use this subject not just as a way of encouragement to us, but also not only just instruction, but also that coming out of this time in the next couple of weeks as we spend time looking at this, that somehow He will alter your behavior as part of the church. And so we want to ask him to do that this morning. But as we look at this list in your outline there, the church, first of all, I want you to understand under some of the misconceptions, the church is not an organization, beloved. It's not an organization that can be just organized and structured after the world. That's not what the church is. A lot of times we, um, there's nothing wrong with being organized we, we, I kind of consider myself to be someone who's longing to always be organized, but never seems to be quite there. You know, it's just that state of frustration I find myself in sometimes. But the church is not just an organization. And I think, unfortunately, when Christianity in our day and age in which we live today has become very organized... Overly organized, you might say. One writer says this, when Christians get organized, they get very unchristian. <laughs> and that's not too far from the truth, beloved. If you look back over church history and you study the subject of the church, it seems that the church of the modern day, the church that we live in today, has become most like the world's organizations I want to point out this morning a couple things that the church is not, just in way of introduction. First of all, the church is not a promotional agency. (laughs) It's not a promotional agency. The church was never designed to be ordered and organized along the lines of world organizational principles. It was never designed to be a management outfit. It was never designed to be followed after a business philosophy. It was never designed to be a selling agency in which people are motivated by certain promotions and gimmicks and money-making schemes. It was never designed to be any of those things. And unfortunately, across the board, for the most part, the church has become just that. The church of today uses amazing gimmicks to fulfill what they assume is their responsibility. And we're just not called to that. 
You don't have to look too far in modern church history to find churches that utilize all sorts of things. I was going to show you a little clip this morning of a video, a promotional video for a church growth DVD. I mean, you think that they're selling the latest, greatest thing. It was just amazing. And I thought, oh, I don't know if I even want to show this in church. But it was, you know, the guy had the voice. And, now, coming to you live. from I mean, it was just crazy. You know, it's like these guys were rock stars or something. And somehow that this DVD, it, it even had, it said, the, these famous church growth partners are going to unlock the secrets. And it had this big chest opening and this white coming out. And then their, their faces came out one at a time as they named them off. It was sick. And I thought, wow, is this what's out there? And then following the, the, the promotional DVD, the commercial, it had an interview with the guy that came up with this. And so it had a lady there, and she said, what motivated you to come up with this DVD, this church growth DVD that's so widely used? And this individual looked right at the camera and goes, well, you know, I was, I was thinking of that poor pastor who's home probably right now, sitting in front of his TV, watching a church of five, ten thousand people worship the Lord, knowing that somehow he's got to go back to his little group of 50 or 100. And how depressed he must be. And how you know, unfortunate it is that this is his lot in life. And it went on and on. Almost like, well, if you had a big church, then everything was okay. If you have a small church, it's not. It was just really... Sad, and and they're sincere, and they market this stuff as promotion and church growth tactics, and they have all kinds of different days. You can have friend day, and you know, bring your mom to church day, and you know, bring your lost neighbor to church day. All kinds of things, you know, come to church, get five bucks. I mean, there, there's churches that pay people to come to church. It's crazy. Now, I want you to know that the church is not a promotional agency. Um, it's also not an organization run by paid professionals. I think sometimes people think that the church is just a useful place to go when you die or when you got to get married or when you maybe have a baby or you want to get baptized or something like that. And, you know, you go and you let the professionals do the work. The church was never designed to be run by paid professionals who do all the work while everybody else watches. That's just not what the church is called to do. But we live, beloved, don't we, in a society like this? We live in a society that where we just watch what goes on. I mean, it was funny. After the Super Bowl, even at the little coffee shop I go to every day, some of the people that were talking after the Super Bowl, it almost made it sound like they were part of the game. Like they were out there on the field somehow playing this game or they were on the sideline coaching it. And they were saying, wow, you know, if I would have, we would have done this. And I'm thinking, who do you think you are? Oh, you're in this home watching your, your, the game. That's all you're doing. You're nobody. You're not good enough to play in the NFL. You're not good enough to coach in the NFL. But in your mind, somehow you tricked yourself and you think that maybe you are. <laughs> at least you talk that way. But we live in a society where we sit at home and we watch the world happen on TV. And when we leave our little home, usually it's to go watch something else happen. 
whether it's sports activities or concerts. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, we all enjoy a concert. We all enjoy going to a game or something like that. But our society overwhelmingly calls us to be spectators with no responsibility, no commitment. And all we do is we sit back and we watch. And unfortunately, the church has fallen into this category. I see ads in the paper once in a while of larger churches in the Bay Area. And it's clearly a ad where they have, usually they're bringing in somebody from Hollywood. Or they're bringing in, so I don't even know if some of these people are Christians, but they're coming to speak at the church. And it's, I mean, it's sad that that's how a lot of people figure out how they're going to go to church every week. They'll look at the paper or they'll figure out who's speaking where or who's playing the hottest music or who's doing this or who's doing that. Well, let's go here this week. So-and-so is going to be there. Well, let's go there this week. So-and-so is going to be there. And they don't have any place to put the roots down. And we live in a society where a lot of Christians decide where they'll be attending church that Sunday based on who's playing or who's speaking or what movie they're showing. The church has become, unfortunately, a place for spectators, a local religious production. The other thing the church is not, it's not a community center. We're not to gather at the church simply because it's a nice place to go. This isn't a country club. Well, if the church isn't those things, what is the church? If it isn't an organization, Steve, then what is it? Well, it's the body of Christ. It's where Christ is the head of that living body. That's what the scriptures refer to the church as, a body. The scripture says in Ephesians 1.23, that is in the fullness of him, and he, he fills it all. He's the head of the church. See, the church is not a human institution. It's not an earthly organization. It's what we call an organism. It's eternal. It's living. It's supernatural. Do you know the church cannot die? The church cannot die if it's a true church. Its head is Christ. The Bible says he lives forevermore. Its members are believers who have been given eternal life by the grace of God. And in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, if you doubt what I'm saying, even Jesus himself said that the gates of hell could not destroy the church. It's indestructible. It's eternal. It's supernatural. It's not just an organization trying to do some good work. If you know anything about organisms, you know that they're alive. If you look up those words in the dictionary, an organization is defined as a structured system. A structured system. But an organism is defined as a living system. And Paul describes the church as such in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He describes it as a body, to use his word. Every individual in the church is alive. It's pulsing through all of us the very life of God. That he's so graciously granted to us through Christ. New Testament also refers to the church as 
the bride, the vine and the branches, the flock, a family. All those things are living things. See, God wants us to understand that the church is alive. It's not just a structured organization. It's an organism. And it's an organism where everybody within the church has a living part. This isn't a place for spectators. It's just not. I mean, when you stop and think of what God did to his church, he gave them the Holy Spirit. He gave them the Spirit of God. And that Spirit dishes out supernatural gifts for the ministry and the edification, for evangelism. And they become critical to the operation of any church. That is why we must understand spiritual gifts. We must understand that God wants us to understand what our spiritual gift is and how to use it within the body so that we can minister to others and edify and build up the body of Christ. Now, just as God has granted spiritual gifts, I want you to understand they're so important. They're so intrinsic in the church itself and its operation. Who do you think on the other side of things wants to manufacture something that's not genuine? The enemy. And he works overtime, counterfeiting gifts of the Spirit and all sorts of things to get people off track. He does so because he knows that they're absolutely necessary to the life and function of the church. The church is not a spectator sport, beloved. It's not a a professional pulpiteer financed by lay spectators and everybody comes and sits and see see what goes on that week. That's not what the church is about. The church is a living, breathing organism and we're called to be part of that and minister each one our gifts as God has given us. So it's critical to understand how you are to function within the body of Christ. That's why today we're talking about finding your place in the church. You might be looking around, so I found my place. I got my chair. I got my seat. This is where it's at. No, there's a little more than just finding a seat in church. The Bible even talks of certain attitudes within the church. Obedience, humility, love. Unity, joy, peace, thankfulness, self-discipline, accountability, forgiveness, dependence, flexibility, growth, faithfulness, hope, all those things. But there's one that kind of I want to focus in on today is a willingness to serve. An attitude that's vital to the people who make up any church is a willingness to serve Christ. I want to look this morning at your need The need for your giftedness. The need for your giftedness. Look over in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Very common verse to many of us. Look at what he says in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, he's talking to Christians, those who make up the church, but by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living, what? Sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. Don't, don't look at the world and say, oh, I want to be like the world. Don't do that. But be transformed, it says, by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now look at verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts, There it is, the spiritual gifts. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and and seek to show hospitality. Paul's saying here in this text in Romans that we should use our God-given talents and gifts and abilities to minister to others. That's, that's bottom line what he's saying. You don't have to have a program, beloved, to be able to minister to others. You don't have to have a program. Just let your abilities that God has graciously granted to you flow out of your life. Whether it's in a structured program or just a personal interaction, whatever it might be, use those gifts for the glory of God. Don't forget, a believer is one who is indwelt. He's empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the reason God did that was for the purpose of serving others. So if you're not serving somehow, you might be creating a bottleneck in the church. You know, just a kind of a clogged up artery kind of a deal. Don't ever stop and say, "Well, I don't know where to I don't know where to serve. You know, nobody's asked me to serve." You know what? You're responsible before God to utilize your gifts the best you know how. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit, God wants you to cultivate that ministry through you for the essential needs of the church. If you're not serving in some capacity, we're incomplete as a body. Secondly, the nature of your giftedness. He says in Romans chapter 12, 6 to 8 there, he lists different categories. Talks about prophecy and ministry and teaching, exhorting, giving, ruling, mercy. There's another list over in 1 Corinthians 12. We'll be looking at that next week. But... Each one of those 
things that he's mentioned is kind of, think of it this way, it's a category. It's very broad. You know, sometimes when we think of the category of giving, what do you think of? People giving money. Well, there's a lot of other ways you can give. It doesn't have to be money. You can give your time, your talent, your treasure. You can give a lot of different ways without giving money. But somehow we think of giving as just money. When you think of showing mercy, there's myriads of ways that you could show mercy if God's gifted you with that. It doesn't look like maybe somebody else is showing mercy. It's not going to look the same. Why? Because God's gifted you uniquely. There's many different styles of preaching and teaching. God has uniquely gifted all of us in a different way, and he's, he's put us in a, a ministry somewhere to serve him the best we know how. The Lord has really given us a blend of gifts. And he gives us those blend of gifts so that we could utilize them in ministering to the body of Christ. I mean, I didn't, after I became a Christian, I didn't say, okay, here's my plan. I want to be a youth pastor. So I'm going to go to youth pastor school. That's not what I did. I just knew somehow I wanted to serve the Lord. I didn't know what. I didn't know anything about the Bible. (coughs) Knew very little about my own faith. Came out of the Catholic Church and really didn't know much even about that. I was an altar boy and everything, but I was a very ignorant Catholic, you might say. So I remember talking to a pastor, and they said, well, you need to go to Bible school. You need to learn about your faith. And so I found a Bible school and went to Bible school and, and was serving in a church while I was going to school. And they just kind of put me in with some teenagers and gave me the book and said, here, you know, they're downstairs. Okay, fine. And that led to 15-plus years in youth ministry. I didn't, I didn't set out to do that. That was God's calling upon my life. But see, you have to be faithful to do something. If you're not doing something, you're basically disobeying what the Lord is calling you to do as a believer. He doesn't call you to be saved and then set. That's just not what he calls you to do. That might be a surprise for some of you, but that's not what he calls you to do. He blends you with certain gifts in different ways. We're all, you might say, little spiritual snowflakes. We're all different. There's none of us who are alike. And that's why God draws us together within the local church and we're there to serve. We're not there to be spectators. We're going to be looking next week at how specifically you can utilize your gift and even giving you a little tool maybe that will help you pinpoint what your gift might be or gifts. Usually you have more than one gift. And we'll be doing a little study on that next week. But don't wait for that. See, so many times I've asked Christians, would you know what your spiritual gifts are? Nope, I don't know. Really? And what's the answer? The answer is usually, oh, here, take this survey. Take this little test, and this will tell you exactly what your spiritual gift is. And that's what I'll be handing out next week. It's a tool, and you can use it. But it's by no means ironclad. If you're in a bad mood when you take that little survey, you're going to come out with all sorts of things that are not you, okay? Or maybe if you're in a good mood, oh, yeah, I love to give. I love to serve. When you really don't, okay, then it's going to come out with a false reading. So what's the best way to find out what your spiritual gift is? Just get involved and do something. And if you don't like doing it, then stop doing it and do something else. 
You know, sometimes we have people say, well, you know, I don't know if I'm called to work with kids or not. I said, well, you know what? We always need Sunday school teachers. We always need people to work in the nursery. But if you don't know if you're called or not, you'll know after a couple weeks. Give it a try. We'll put you in there with somebody. You'll figure it out. Either you'll love it or you'll hate it. And if you hate it, guess what? You're not called to work with kids. Go somewhere else. Well, I don't know if, if I can greet. You know, I don't know if that would be a good ministry. I'm, just try it. Try it. You know? I mean, we don't want people out there that, that are not personable with people when they come into our church. How are you this morning? Yeah, welcome here. Here's your bulletin. Go find a seat. I don't want somebody like that at the door. If that's not your gift, don't be there, please. We want somebody that's welcoming and warm. By the way, let us know how we're doing. You know, we're always open for criticism in that area because it's crucial that we, we see that. Sometimes when you're part of a church long enough, you, you, you overlook the obvious. But see, you know, I don't know if I could lead a Bible study. Try it once. What's the worst thing is, you know, it didn't work out and you moved on to something else. Now, there are some things practically, well, I don't know if, you know, I'm called to serve on the worship team or not. Well, come to a, a time when we get together and, 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 and sing with us or play your instrument with us. We'll tell you real quick. You know, if you can't play your instrument, then don't bother coming. Or if you can't sing, then don't bother coming. You know you're not called to that. I'll tell you that. All right? It's, it's kind of, it's not rocket science is what I'm trying to get at. But see, the unwillingness to even get involved at all... That's disobedience. And that needs to be repented of. And that needs to be, you know, fixed right away. See, a willing servant, I've learned this over years of ministry, a willing servant is always spontaneous in what he does. Somebody who's willing to serve is just spontaneous. They're just a servant. They don't have to have a plan and, and, you know, all this stuff orchestrated out. No, they're just saying, hey, I'm going to serve, you know. Show up at the potluck. What do you want me to do? Well, I don't know. Uh, maybe we could do. Well, you want me to do dishes? I'll do dishes. You want me to clean the floor? I'll clean the floor. Take out the garbage. Whatever. You know, I, it's just a willingness on the servant's part. If you have a willingness to serve, I guarantee you this: it's not going to be a burden. Your ministry is just going to flow from you. It's that simple. I hear some people, you know, who are involved in ministry. All they're doing is complaining and griping. Oh, man, it's so much work. Oh, geez, you know, man, I have to do this. And I'm thinking, why are you doing it? Just stop. You know, what you're doing is, is, is not pleasing to God because you're not doing it with the right attitude. You're doing it really in the flesh. You're not doing it by the Spirit of God that we're called to, to do it by. See, if you, if you can't sit back and allow God to flow... Spirit flow through you and serve the body of Christ in the way he wants to. Then, you know what? You need to have a heart check. You need to look at your heart and say, what's wrong? Because as a Christian, I know what Christ has done for me. I mean, God has given his own son. He died on a cross. He granted me salvation. I don't earn this. I don't deserve this. But he gave it to me out of the kindness and grace of his heart. Surely we can conjure up some thanks and willingness to serve his bride, the church, in some capacity. I know you're busy. I know you're tired. Welcome to the club. So what? That doesn't make it, you know, okay just to do nothing. 
Find something you can do and get busy doing it. If you don't know what it is, come and talk to us. We'll put you to work, figure out something. I mean, it's Christ himself that said in Matthew 5, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall it become salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out, trampled under people's feet. You are the salt, you are the light of the world, he says. A city cannot set on a hill and be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Then in verse 16, he says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your what? Good works and give glory to you? No, to your Father who is in heaven. See, we don't get involved in ministry just so somebody can come along and pat us on the back and say, Oh, good job, good job. If that's why you're in ministry, man, you're going to be sorely uh, disappointed. That happens occasionally, but that's not the motivation. The motivation is that you're doing what God the Father wants you to do. So we're called to be the salt and the light. We're called to be ambassadors to the world that's lost and dying. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul writes, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. What's an ambassador? Ambassador is somebody who goes to a foreign country and represents their home country to that foreign land. We are ambassadors for Christ. We're here in this lost and dying world, and we're representing him as Christians. It says, God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's our message. The message is, is that, you know what? There's reconciliation possible. That, that, that relationship was breached by what we call sin. And there's not a person in this room that has not dealt with sin, experienced sin, in some form or fashion in their own life. Because the Bible says very clearly, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you might be sitting there smuggling, well, not me. Well, (laughs) come on. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever taken something irrespective of its value that's not yours? Have you ever thought a lustful thought or some, some other thought that's not right, that's not honoring to God? We've all sinned in a myriad of ways, and we continue to sin in our lives in a myriad of ways. And God's grace is the only way that we're not just snuffed out because of God's holiness. But we're to take the message of forgiveness and reconciliation and the freedom that we experience in Christ as believers to a lost and dying world. And I ask you, are we doing that? Are we doing that? The Bible also describes us as pilgrims in this world. We may not like to hear this, but it's true. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, it says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that they may speak against you as evildoers, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Also says, but our citizenship in Philippians 3.20 is in heaven, and we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, God has left us here for a purpose, but the purpose isn't to get all comfy in the world. That's not the purpose. 
Our purpose is to reach out to a lost and dying world with a message of hope, with a message of forgiveness, with the only message that can reconcile them to God. That's the message of Christ, the message of the gospel, the message that helps us realize that we are nothing and he is everything, that we are mere sinners before a holy God and we need to cry out to him for mercy to save our souls. And by his grace, he'll do that. First Peter 1.17, it says, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. What's he saying is don't get comfortable down here on earth. You're just here temporarily. You're not here to set up camp. Sometimes we forget that. I mean, there is a purpose, beloved, for our individual existence as believers in the society in which we live. What is that purpose? It's to turn men to God through Christ. That's the purpose. We're to be a witnessing community, a group of people placed in the world to draw attention to the world of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, turn over there. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to be looking into this in more detail next week. But it's probably one of the most interesting chapters, one of the most important chapters and probably one of the most controversial chapters in all all Scripture. Um, And we're going to be looking into this more next week. But I want you to understand that this speaks of spiritual gifts. You know, you say, well, what's your place in the church? Well, God has given you a place in the church because he placed you in the church. If you're part of the body of Christ, if you're not, if you've yet to put your faith, your trust in Christ... You can do that right now. You can cry out to God and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Show me this way of salvation. Help me put my faith and trust in Christ and the work that he has done for me on the cross. Help me to stop trusting in myself and trust in you, God. Transform my mind, as that word, that scripture talked about in Romans. Renew me. Reconcile me to yourself through your son. Forgive my sin. He'll answer that prayer. But here in 1 Corinthians 12, we're talking to a church. Paul's writing this letter to a church. And don't think for a second that this church was some super-duper spiritual church. They were not. They were about as carnal as you can get. They were not you know, the, uh, the spiritual example in their time. Chapter 1, verses 10 to 13 says that they were plagued with divisions within the church. Now, if you got divisions within a body, wouldn't you say you got problems? If you, if you came to me and said, yeah, my body's divided, you would have some problems. <laughs> okay. I mean, either you're talking about your arm being cut off or your leg or something. I mean, th- that just doesn't happen to a body. 
Well, they were plagued with divisions. In chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, it says they never really matured as believers. Paul calls them mere babes in Christ. In chapter 5, verses 1 to 2, Paul tells us that they were tolerating immorality in the church. They were just kind of looking the other way. They weren't dealing with it. Yet, in verse 7 of chapter 1, there's still a spiritual congregation. They have all those problems, and yet there's still a spiritual congregation. Now, when you look at the church at Corinth, they probably exhibited most, if not all, of the spiritual gifts, clearly. Um, and why do I point that out? Because their spirituality wasn't something to be looked upon as an example of godliness. They were wanting very much so when it came to their own spiritual lives, but they still possessed all these gifts. Point is, it's not just the super saint, okay? It's not just the the super-duper Christian that has a spiritual gift. See, every believer within the body of Christ has at least one, if not more. That's what we're shown in Scripture. See, the problem at Corinth was not that they didn't possess their gifts. They possessed them. They had them. But it was that they wanted gifts that had not been assigned to them. (laughs) They weren't happy with what God gave them. They wanted something else. See, when God gifts the Christian, I want you to understand this, he does so by his own sovereign will. Look at verse 11 of chapter 12, 1 Corinthians. It says, all these, speaking of all these different kinds of gifts, he lifts them off there and he says, all these are empowered by one and the same spirit. And then it says this, who apportions to each one individually, what's it say? As he wills. It's not like a smorgasbord. You know, I don't know if you ever go to smorgasbords, you know, you go and you got all this food and you're just like, wow, okay. Do you want to go to the seafood? Do you want to go to the roast beef? Where do you want to go, you know? I'm not good for those things because I I have one plate and I'm done. I fill up quick, probably because I drink too much water or soda or whatever, but I just can't pack that much food in there. You wouldn't know that to look at me, obviously, but I don't do well at smorgasbords. This is not a smorgasbord. We don't go to God and say, ah, let's see, I'll have one of those gifts and I'll, no, he's already taken care of it. I mean, in a way, isn't that a good thing? That he, in his wisdom, has assigned to you certain spiritual gifts that he knows are best with you. We don't go to God and say, oh, I want that one. I want this one. Well, that's what they were doing. God gifted them all with all kinds of gifts, but they were saying, well, wait, I don't want this one. I don't want the gift of giving. I want the gift of mercy, or I don't want the gift of teaching. I want the gift to speak in different languages, or to prophesy, or to do something else. And as a result, there was chaos and confusion in their church. And the gifts that they sought out were really the flashy gifts. 
the ones that called attention to people. And they'd ignore the ones that really didn't. So their flesh was involved in all this. And you know what? Unfortunately, we see the same thing today in our modern-day church. Even though the Word of God clearly tells us that we are brought into the body of Christ, we're placed in the body of Christ, and it's not up to us. We're really passive in the whole thing. Our, our, our placement in the body of Christ is passive, first of all. It says he does it. God does it. Clearly, he put us in the body of Christ. He baptized us into the body of Christ. When we came to salvation, don't believe the doctrine that says that you're supposed to, after you're saved, seek some form of baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's a false doctrine that divides the body of Christ into those who have and those who have not the Spirit of Christ. And it's not biblical. Romans 8, 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, speaking to believers. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him, period. So some of our brothers and sisters within the body of Christ have that doctrine all wrong. The baptism of the Spirit, as they call it, is not something that should be sought out. It's not a second blessing that makes you more holy or more divine or more anything. Because the Bible teaches that the moment of conversion, we are given the Holy Spirit and we're placed, we're baptized into the body of Christ, into the church. And just to be real frank, if it's something that we seek or it's based on something that we do, then it's simply not a sovereign act of Almighty God. That word baptized means to immerse, it means to place into something. The baptism of the Spirit is a real event. It happens. The instant we are converted. The instant we come to Christ. Every child of God possesses the Holy Spirit in its entirety. We do not get more as we go along. Now, we may yield more to the Spirit. We may be filled with the Spirit. That's different. But as far as being baptized in the body of Christ, it happens once. It says, for by one Spirit we were all baptized into the body, past tense. A couple truths about Christ's body. It's... His, his, the, the church is formed as believers are baptized by Christ with the Holy Spirit. Do you understand that the Holy Spirit is the agent of baptism? He's not the one who baptizes us. A lot of people are running around seeking the baptism. You know, Holy Spirit, please baptize us. Well, no, he doesn't baptize 
Christ baptizes. John the Baptist said at Jesus' own baptism, He who is coming after me is mightier than I, who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. So when you stop and you think about it, there's a baptism of fire, which is talking about judgment of hell, the burning of the, the chaff, unquenchable fire, that whole thing. As Savior, Christ baptizes with the Holy Spirit. As judge, he baptizes with fire. All believers receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit. All unbelievers will receive the baptism with fire. So therefore, every living soul will be baptized by Christ. Now, he's not talking about water baptism here. He's talking about spiritual baptism. He's talking about being placed into the body of Christ. Water baptism is merely an outward sign of an inward change in your life, a willingness to turn from your own life and follow Christ. That's what water baptism is. It's a symbol of your your newfound faith. You also hear that term a lot, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's really not the correct translation of that text. The correct translation is by one spirit or with one spirit. The believers are baptized by Christ. So it's best to translate that phrase as with one spirit. It's not the Holy Spirit's baptisms. It's Christ's baptism with the Holy Spirit. That one spirit that gives us new life. And he places us into something called the church when we trust in Christ. So when you stop and you really weigh out these different things, you have to understand that our placement in the body is something that God does on our behalf. He sovereignly places us within the body of Christ. He saves us. We're not saved because we want to get saved. We're not saved because we think we should get saved. We're not saved because we do a bunch of stuff that maybe will save us. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is, no, God in his mercy and his incredible love reached down and he plucked you out of a group of people that were on the way to hell and he saved you sovereignly, miraculously. It's not something you've done. Sometimes people in their ignorance, they get saved. Yeah, you know, I can't believe, I finally found, found Christ. I found Christ. Well, was he lost? What do you mean you found Christ? I'd rather say, no, he, he put his hand on you. You didn't find anybody. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all gone astray. We've all missed the mark. And when we're saved, it's something that God does on our behalf. And he does it in a personal way. That's the second point there. It's personal. Our placement in the body of Christ wasn't just some random act by God one day. No, it's a personal thing. Every sinner who places his faith in Jesus Christ for salvation experiences the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They're they're baptized into the body of Christ. They become part of the church.
It's a personal thing because we serve a personal God. I mean, just think of John 3.16, for God, a person, a deity, a God. He, he loved the world, another person, group of people, that he gave. It's an act of kindness. His only begotten son. You know, when you stop and you think of what God has done, it's very personal. When Christ died on the cross, he died for you. He died for me. It wasn't some, you know, combined deal. Our salvation, our placement within the body of Christ is a very personal thing. Have you trusted in Christ? I'll ask you this morning. Have you made that personal commitment, that personal knowledge of him? He wants that for you. Are you born again? Have you been placed within the body of Christ? You can be. You cry out to him in faith. See, nobody can answer that question but you. God knows you. He created you. He knows your heart. He knows what you're thinking right now. Watch for lunch. (laughs) Whatever it might be, he already knows. Because he's a personal God. And lastly, I want you to understand that when we're placed in the body of Christ, it's permanent. Once a person has been baptized into the body of Christ, they're there to stay. That verb phrase that we are all baptized, it's in what they call the aorist tense in the Greek. It speaks of a one-time action. It only happens once, beloved. And it took place at some unspecified time in the past. It's not something you repeat. You don't get rebaptized and rebaptized in the Spirit over and over and over again, as some teach. That's that's false teaching. No, we're placed into the body of Christ once. We're baptized with His Holy Spirit once. When you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and He's convicted your heart, and you cry out to Him. It's a one-time-for-all action that places you into the body of Christ. The good thing is it's, it's one time because it's permanent. You can never do that again. That's where people get messed up when they start looking into Hebrews and stuff. And in certain texts in Hebrew, it says, well, you can't be kind of renewed to repentance. Well, yeah, you can't. If you've repented, you've repented. If you're saved, you're saved. You can't be saved again. Through some other action, either you came to to God through Christ, there's no other road, there's no other path. Good news is when you get in the body of Christ, you don't get out. (laughs) You don't get out because we're held there by his sovereign hand, by his love. Look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm just going to read the first three verses here and then close, and we're going to look at this next week. But I want you to understand what Paul's heart here is is telling us. He says in verse 1, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be, ESV says, uninformed. 
uh, I think New King James says ignorant. In other words, this is a very important subject matter that I want to talk to you about. And I don't want you to be ignorant about it. I don't want you to be uninformed about it. He says, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mere, to mute idols. However, you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And then he goes and he lists off these gifts. We're going to be looking at this text next week. And then we're going to give you a little tool to maybe kind of hone down your, your own spiritual gifts if you don't already know what, what it is. But the purpose of this study is to kind of help you find your, your place in the body of Christ because it's not just about coming to church. I mean, hey, we're, we're happier here, don't get me wrong. But it's about how do you serve the body of Christ once you come. I mean, I don't know if you've read the news lately or if you've looked around and seen the condition of the society in which we live, beloved. But the world is going to hell in a handbasket, to be quite frank. And we have a message, a life-giving message, that we are committed to take to a lost and dying world. And I want to ask you, are we doing that? Are we doing that as individuals? Are we doing that as a church? I want you to pray about that this week. And ask yourself, well, if maybe we're not doing it to the extent we should, what's my part in it? It's always easy to point fingers and say, well, you should be doing this as a church or you should be doing that. You can try that once with me. I take your finger and turn it right back at you and say, well, go for it. What do you want to do? <laughs> we'll help you out however we can. If the ministry's from God, if it's godly, if it's biblical, go for it. We're behind you 100%. Do whatever we can to encourage you. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, we, we pray that as we looked at this subject matter, the uncompromised church, I pray that our own hearts would not be compromised in any way this morning. Father, that as we come before you, a holy God, Lord, and we look at our own lives, Father, there's basically a breakdown of two groups of people, those who have Christ, those who possess Christ, those who have eternal salvation through Christ, and those who do not. I want to speak to those who do not. I want to ask you, what are you waiting for? God's patient. God's good, loving. But when you know the truth, the truth can only set you free if you're willing to believe it, if you're willing to commit to it, if you're willing to obey it. The truth doesn't do much for those people who are just turn a deaf ear to it. So I ask you this morning, if you've yet to put your faith, your trust in Christ, it's a real deal. He's real. 
The forgiveness is real. The reconciliation is real. The peace that you experience is real. The power that you experience is real. You could talk to other people in this room if you don't believe me, and they could testify to the same thing. I pray that you would cry out to Christ. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me in my unbelief, Lord. Help me to believe this message of hope and forgiveness that Christ offers. Help me to repent of my sin, turn away from my sin, and turn to you. For us believers here this morning, I just want to ask a simple question. Are we doing everything we should be doing? Are we fulfilling God's purpose here on this earth? Or are we just bidding time till he comes back? I don't care how old you are, how young you are, how long you've been a Christian, or how new you are in the faith. It makes no difference. The word of God applies to all of us. It's very clear that God has gifted you in a myriad of ways. And he expects you to use your giftings to serve, to edify the body of Christ. And to reach out into a lost and dying world and share the message of hope and forgiveness that we have in Christ through the gospel. I pray that we would not leave this place this morning without hearing the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, speak to our hearts. Lord, show us what we need to do as a church. Show us how we can better minister to this community in which we live and to one another. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.